So why do we love Christmas? For starters, it's that part of winter that we actually like, right? We're good with the snow in December. It's fine. In fact, we, we like it. We like having a white Christmas. If it snows on Christmas Day, it's a bonus, right? Hey, we got a white Christmas this year. No one's sad about winter in December. Now come talk to us in March and April and we're done with it, right? But at Christmas time, we love the lights. We love the decorations. We love searching out for the perfect Christmas tree. At Christmas time, there's family movies and family traditions. We love all the parties, the gatherings, the food. There's some foods we only eat at this time of year. It offers us a chance to connect and reconnect with family and friends. And of course, everybody loves the gifts, right? From gift giving to gift receiving, it's an opportunity to tangibly express our love for friends and family. But of all these reasons to love Christmas, for the Christian, there's actually a deeper reason that makes it the most wonderful time of year. And it's captured for us in Matthew chapter 1, verses 20 through 23. Becca read them earlier. You re- let me remind you of these words. But as Joseph considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife. For that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. And all of this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. Why is Christmas the most wonderful time of the year? Because God gave us Jesus, the greatest gift of all, and he gave him us to save us from our sins. This Christmas season has historically been known as Advent. It's that time of year when we remember that God has come to be with us, that God has assumed flesh in the person of Jesus Christ. And verse 21 tells us exactly why Jesus came to save his people from their sins. In other words, Christmas is all about God's grace. It's about his grace. And whether we recognize it or not, whether or not the culture recognizes it or not, that's why Christmas is the most wonderful time of the year. There is a magic in the air because Christ has come. Love has come down. And this year for Advent, we're going to spend the next five weeks unwrapping this gift of grace. If Christmas is all about God's gift of grace, it seems entirely appropriate that we would unwrap and unbox this gift of grace. See, the doctrines of grace answer the question, how does Jesus save us from our sins? This is the central question that the Bible seeks to answer And in fact, it takes the whole Bible to answer that question fully. You really can't get the whole story without 
all of the story. And so to be helpful, over the years throughout church history, people and theologians and pastors have taken the the whole of God's counsel, all of this scripture, and synthesized and organized the Bible's answer to this question in five main points known as the doctrines of grace. And that's really helpful, right? Because if you want to know the answer to something, I could say, well, how does God save you from your sin? Just read this whole book. And it would take you quite a while to get there. And it's important that you should do that. But another helpful way to answer that question is to take the main points of that and systematize it and organize it into something that you can digest a little more easily. And these doctrines of grace come to us in these five main points. And if you can get these five main points, you can answer the question, how does Jesus save us from our sin? The first one we're going to cover today is called total depravity. Then from there we move to unconditional election. Then there's the perfect atonement, followed by irresistible grace and perseverance of the saints. Now here's where a little bit of history will be helpful. Because I think sometimes we think these five points were created in some ivory tower of theology somewhere. But that's not how theology often develops. It's developed throughout the course of history. Meaning uh, it's not created in a vacuum. There's real people and real situations going on. And so if we pick up the story of history in the 1500s, we have to start with the Reformation. See, at the time, the Roman Catholic Church had become corrupt. They were, it, 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 it had, uh, the church had intermingled politics and there was a burdensome ecclesiology. So instead of people's faith being driven by scripture, people's faith was hindered by superstition. See, most people at that time did not have a Bible in their home. They just had to take the priest's word for it. And so there were uh, the pure waters of the doctrine of salvation had become muddy. They didn't know how, do, how does someone get saved. And so what would happen is the church would say, well, there's Jesus. But you know what can really help you out are these things called indulgences where you can kind of uh, uh, purchase salvation for loved ones. Kind of help get them over that line. Right? Jesus did a lot of the work, but you know, your uncle was pretty sinful. So if you'll purchase this indulgence, it'll help him get across the line. He might not have to spend as much time in purgatory. Sacraments that were intended to stir devotion became a means of earning salvation. And what was given as a gift from God, which is his grace, became a work to earn. And so without the gospel, the people of God became spiritually anemic. And like the breaking of light at dawn, the Reformation brought light back to the church. And it started because um, people like Martin Luther started to study and dig back into the word. You may have heard the term sola scriptura, which means only the Bible. This is the foundation. And so as these, uh, 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 Martin Luther was a, a monk, he was a priest, he's, he's reading through the Bible and he's discovering the gospel for the first time and recognizing what's going on here in the church is not what the scriptures say. 
And he wanted to bring light back to the church, particularly around the question, how does Jesus save his people from their sins? And so what happened in the Reformation is that the Reformation recovered the truth that salvation is not by works. Salvation is not by sacraments. It's not by indulgences. It's not by religiosity. It's not by human effort of any kind, but only and totally and exclusively by the grace of God. Ephesians 2, 8 through 9. For by grace you've been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is a gift of God. Not a result of works so that no one may boast. It is so straightforward that it's not about us. Then you fast forward about 100 years after the Reformation. There was a Dutch professor named James Arminius. And his teachings had started to gain a large following. And and his followers took his teachings and they put them into five main points of doctrine. And this group who was following um, this Dutch professor, James Arminius, they wanted to challenge some of the teachings of the Reformation. Their main issue was Reformed theology didn't give man enough credit in salvation. They taught that humanity was certainly hurt and ruined by the fall, but not totally ruined by the fall. That the fall of sin brought man into a place of devastation, but there was still a glimmer of hope. That without God's intervention, a person on their own could muster up the faith to receive the gospel. And that ultimately... It wasn't up to God to save, but it was up to each person's own responsibility to initiate salvation by responding to the gospel. In other words, God had done the work to make salvation possible. Now it was up to you to pick up the work from there. The problem with this is that the Bible and the reformers taught just the opposite. That it was not a result of work so that no man should boast. The Bible teaches that we are ruined by the fall and left in such a state that apart from divine intervention, no one would ever be able to generate or create faith and cause their own rebirth. In other words, what humanity needs, only God can provide. Salvation, the Bible teaches and the Reformation heralded is from beginning to end is by grace through A gift from God, not as a result of works so that no one may boast. So you've got this one group over here saying, you're not giving man enough credit in salvation. And you've got uh, uh, the the, the doctrines that were put together by by the Reformation... And that was kind of the established belief. And so this this group is coming in and going, okay, we want to challenge that. And so they held a seven-month-long conference. You're thinking seven months to talk theology. There's no TVs at this time, no iPhones, okay? So they got a lot of time on their hands. They had a seven-month-long conference known as the Synod of Dort, okay? This is in 1618. And so they took this time, seven months, to say, listen, you guys are our brothers and sisters in Christ. We want to hear you out. If you think there's something wrong with our theology and you think the Bible teaches something different, well, we want to be in line with the Bible. And I love that. They're willing to go, if you think we've got it wrong, let's listen. So they held a seven-month-long conference over 154 sessions where they just opened up the Bible and said, guys, tell us where we're wrong. And at the end of this conference, the synod concluded 
that the teachings of Arminianism were simply out of step with Scripture. And then, remember, the Arminians brought five points of doctrine. The Reformed tradition said, okay, just so that we're clear, we're going to come up with five counterpoints so that the teachings are clear. And that's what we know as the doctrines of grace. You see, it wasn't created in an ivory tower. There was a real question going on. How does Jesus save us from our sins? And you had one group over here saying, we think it's this way. And they held a seven-month-long conference to go, is that what the scriptures teach? And at the end of that conference, they realized that's not what the scriptures teach. Now, we sometimes call them Calvinism. And that's simply because the writings of John Calvin are so saturated in scripture and they were so helpful in um, understanding the differences between the two systems of thought, his name just kind of got attached to it. So here's what we're going to do this series. In, in this series, We're going to look at each of these five points. I mentioned them earlier. Total depravity, unconditional election, perfect atonement, irresistible grace, perseverance of, of the saints. And we're going to unwrap each one. We're going to show how, they're, how, how they emerge from the pages of Scripture to help us understand how Jesus um, saves us from our sins. We're going to define all these terms. You don't need to know what all of them mean right now. That's fine. We're going to look at them each week. And then we're going to uh, define them. We're going to defend them through Scripture. And then we're going to apply them to our lives. Because I think they have real everyday importance for how we live out the Christian faith. So defend, define, defend, and apply. That's where we're headed this morning. And our first point of total depravity. All right? That's where we're headed. So let's begin with the first one, total depravity. Let me give you uh, what we're going to, we're going to begin with a, um, a definition. We'll have it on the screen here in just a minute. But what do we mean by the term total depravity? Sometimes you may hear this term referred to as radical depravity, total inability, righteous incapability, radical corruption, or even moral inability. And they're all getting at the same thing. What's important is not the term, but the scripture-driven content behind the term. Like, what is it actually referring to? And trust me, we're going to get into scripture um, today. Marie, you've got your work cut out for you. There's a lot of slides for you uh, with scriptures today. We're going to dive into the scriptures. But before I do, I want us to have just a good working definition of what we mean by total depravity. So here it is on the screen. As a result of the fall, remember that's Genesis 3 where humanity falls. As a result of the fall, every part and faculty of man Soul and body, mind and heart, will and emotions have been corrupted by sin. Each person is born enslaved to sin and spiritually dead in their sin and therefore is totally incapable of responding to God in faith apart from divine intervention. That's what we mean by total depravity. Now I'm going to continue to unpack this definition. So the term total depravity is trying to answer the extent and the depth of sin. When sin enters into the world, it does something to us. And total depravity is trying to help us understand the extent to which it corrupts humanity. That's why we use the word total. See, sin has affected every single part of us, who we are and what we do. The word total is conveying that sin affects the person in totality or their whole person. Every, per, every aspect of, 
of every single one of us in this room, your mind, our will, our emotions, our body is corrupted by sin. Anyone's body ever aches? Right? You can thank sin for that. The fact that you die one day, you can thank sin for that. Your body has been corrupted by sin. Have you ever noticed that sometimes your emotions are, are, are out of step with reality? You can thank sin for that. You ever notice you have these sinful urges and desires that stand opposed to God's word? You can thank sin for that. Have you ever noticed that your mind doesn't think clearly and straight about things sometimes? You can thank sin for that. Every part of who you are has been affected and infected by sin. You imagine a glass of water and you put a contaminant in it. You going to drink that water? Why not? The whole of it. It's not like a piece of cheese. If it gets a little mold on the side, you can just slice it off, right? You can do that, by the way. When it gets into a liquid, though, there's no, it's hard, you can't distinguish like, well, it's just on the top. No, no, no. When a contaminant gets in the water, all the water is bad. When sin gets into humanity, it corrupts all of you, not part of you. It's not like sin is hanging out in one sector and then the rest of you is good. All of you has been infected and corrupted by sin. The virus of sin doesn't just stay on the surface. It's worked its way into your core and it's actually fused itself into your DNA. It's both physical and non-physical. It's all of you. The reason you produce acts of sin, the reason you sin is because you are sinners by nature. Say that word with me, nature. Jesus said in Matthew 7, 17, every healthy tree bears what? Good fruit. But the diseased tree bears what? Bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. You know what Jesus is getting at? We're all, we're all diseased trees, so you know what we produce? Bad fruit. Sin has made us diseased trees, therefore we produce bad fruit. Now let me tell you what depra total depravity doesn't mean. I told you what it means, let me tell you what it doesn't mean. It doesn't mean utter or absolute depravity. Total depravity does not mean that every man or every woman is as thoroughly depraved as he could possibly become. By God's grace, we're not as bad as we could be. So what I'm saying is it could get a lot worse. And by God's grace, he hasn't allowed us to get into the total, utter, wretched state that we would be, right? I mean, there's not just utter chaos going on out there. And you can thank God's common grace for that. It doesn't mean that you, that, that, that you do not or cannot do things that seem to be good. Like bringing food to help the hungry. That's a good thing. People do that, right? But that's still viewing goodness from a human perspective or measured against a human standard. What the Bible does teach and what total depravity does recognize is that even the good things we do are tainted by sin. You know why? Because they're not done for the glory of God and out of faith from him. And Paul tells us anything that doesn't proceed from faith is sin. So even our good deeds have selfish motivations behind them have selfish deeds by them, right? There's, all, there's always something in there. So it doesn't mean we can't do anything that's, that's good. It just means it's not righteously good in order to earn your salvation. In other words, a fallen man's good deeds are often 
not driven by a desire to please and serve the Lord, but by our selfish interest and therefore are corrupted to the point that scriptures declare that no one does good, no, not one. Total depravity also doesn't mean that human beings are incapable of any semblance of justice. We're able often to look at matters and judge between what is right and wrong. We're often uh, able to do good deeds towards other fellow human beings, opening the door for people, helping people out. I saw a woman outside today in the parking lot with a, 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 a broke down car needing a jump and several people uh, in our church came, came by and said, are you okay? Do you need any help? Those are good things. Total depravity doesn't mean that humanity has no innate knowledge of the will of God or even a conscience that discriminates between good and evil. It doesn't mean that sinful man doesn't offer, admire virtuous character or actions in others. Nor does total depravity mean that every single person will indulge in every single form of sin. That's not what the total depravity means. That would be utter depravity or absolute depravity. And by God's grace, there are things like um, government institutions, societal norms, family structures that help keep sin in check. Those are good things. What total depravity does mean is that the whole of our human nature, soul and body, mind and heart, will and emotions is corrupt. And our entire person has become selfish and darkened. See, everybody has the natural ability to faithfully obey God's word. Meaning, you don't lack uh, the, 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 the physical ability to do it. So like I could tell you, this is God's will for you, and you could actually go do it physically. There's nothing keeping you from doing that. The problem is, the reason we don't, is that the fall has made us morally incapable of wanting to obey. See, total depravity says, it's not that you can't obey. It's that you won't obey. And that's the difference. And that's the problem. Because of the fall, man is spiritually unable to do anything pertaining to salvation. You and I are born enslaved to sin, rebellious to God, blind to truth. We are corrupt in our nature and dead in our sin. Here's our working definition one more time, and then we're going to get into a ton of scripture. As a result of the fall, every part and faculty of man, soul and body, mind and heart, will and emotions have been corrupted by sin. Each person is therefore born enslaved to sin, spiritually dead in their sin, and therefore totally incapable of responding to God in faith apart from divine intervention. Now that we've got that definition, keep that in mind. Here we go. Romans 3, 9 to 18. Quick bit of context. Romans chapter 1, Paul tells how the Gentiles practice ungodliness and unrighteousness. And he says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness, what do we do in our sin? Suppress the truth. Then in chapter 2, Paul says, Jews, don't, don't get too comfortable here because you're in no place to judge the Gentiles because you're just as sinful. What does he say? Romans 2.1 Therefore, you Jews have no excuse, every one of you who judges, for in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself. Why? Because you, the judge, do what? Practice the very same things. He's saying, Jews, don't get so high and mighty. You guys do the exact same things. And then he comes to a summary of the problem of humanity. That's what Romans 3 is about. He says, what then? Are we Jews any better off? 
in regards to sin? No, not at all. For we have our charge that all, all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin as it is written. Now in verse 9, Paul restates the problem. Both Jews and Gentiles, which means everyone, that's, that's Paul's way of saying everybody, is under sin. Under it, under its, its weight, under its dominion. No one, therefore, is in a better position than anyone else when it comes to sin. We're all under its dominion, and all of us experience the poison and sting of sin. And then verse 10. None is righteous. No, not one. It's like bookended. None and not one. Just so if you didn't hear me in none... I got you on not one. Paul's saying we are depraved in our character. No one, not one, is characterized by righteousness. Now you might be saying, okay, pastor, I know some good people. I've seen some people. They're they're pretty good. Perhaps Paul's just being hyperbolic here. And I can assure you he's not. Paul is saying, sure, relative to other sinful human beings and depraved human beings, there are some that rise above. Right, we can, we can, we can, like, there's an America's most wanted list for a reason, right? They're pretty depraved. And then there's people who you go, man, this guy's a great mentor. He's a good coach. They're, they're a humanitarian. And yes, they look more righteous on the surface. But we're not just comparing people, not to the standard of holiness that's set by God. So when we look around and we say, no, no, there's some pretty good people. You notice how we always add that word in front of it? Pretty good people. None of us are out there going, look, this person is perfectly righteous. No one's ever said that. See, when we say, well, no, no, someone's pretty good. We're lowering the standard of righteousness and holiness. Would it make much of of a race if they lowered the hurdles in the Olympics? So like guys like me could hurdle them? That's not a feat. You know what I mean? You don't gain by lowering the standard. Paul's saying to the, compared to the actual standard of righteousness and holiness, no one measures up. Well, in other words, what Paul's saying is when all of us meet our maker, none of us is going to be able to look at our own righteousness and go, hey God, I don't know if you've seen my resume. It's pretty impressive. Right? Anyone doing that? No. Our sinfulness and unrighteousness outweighs any semblance of good that we have done. And the problem is, is that for whatever good we've done, the evilness of our sin and thought, word, and deed have left us spiritually and morally bankrupt before a holy God. That's why Paul can say, there is no one righteous, no, not one. Then Paul says, no one understands. Now Paul is talking about the depravity of our minds. Our minds do not understand God. On our own, we don't understand him. You can read philosophy books. You can read good Christian books. You can even read the Bible. But unless God gives you understanding, you will not understand God. That's why, you, you, you know, you, you'll, you'll open this up to a coworker or a family or friend. And you go, look, look what he's done. And they go, yeah, I don't get it. Doesn't make sense to me. And you're like, we're reading the same thing. Why does it impact me? Why? Because the spirit of the living God has not opened up their mind yet to see it. They're still in their darkened, sinful state. You don't understand the gospel because you're so bright. It's not because you're so smart. 
It's because God has opened your mind to see it. We don't come to God through personal discovery and enlightenment. Did you know on the night in which Jesus was betrayed, before his arrest, Jesus prayed this. John 17, 25. O righteous Father, even though the world, what? Does not know you. I know you. And these that you have sent me. Because Jesus opened up their minds to the scriptures. They're able to understand them. What is Jesus saying? He's saying, the world doesn't know you, God. They don't know you. Friends, Jesus said that the world does not know or understand God. Why? Because our, in our sin, our minds are darkened and depraved. But Paul goes on. He says, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together, they've become worthless. Now Paul says, not only are we depraved in our minds, but we're depraved in our desires. We don't seek for God. Rather, what have we done? We've all turned aside. Now sure, we might search for meaning and significance and things that seem eternal, but we don't naturally seek for God. We search for significance for our own glory. We search for meaning for our own curiosity. We search for the eternal for our own longevity. But on our own, all of our spiritual pursuits are self-driven. We have all turned away from the one true God to pursue our own interest. And because of that, Paul's saying our pursuits have become worthless. Then Paul goes on again. He says, no one does good, not even one. Not even one. Not only are we deprived in our minds and in our desires, in our character, but also in our actual actions and deeds. We might do good deeds from time to time, but they're often, like we said earlier, tainted with selfish motives and pursuits because they're not done for the glory of God in a grateful response to all that he's done for us. And then verse 13 and 14, he says, Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asp is under their lips, and their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Now Paul goes into some specifics of our depravity. Even our speech is depraved. We spread lies. We tear people down. We open our mouths and curses and bitterness and poison comes out. It goes on. Their feet are swift to shed blood and in their paths are ruin and misery and the way of peace they have not known. And now you start to see our depravity working itself out into everyday living. If you were to look back on, the, on, on your journey of life, just look back into your own history, you know what you're going to find there? Ruin and misery. You know why? We're not peacemakers. You ever gotten so angry you wanted to actually shed blood? And perhaps you not actually shed blood, praise God, by his grace. But my guess is, in that moment, it was much more to do with a fear of prison and punishment than damaging another image bearer. We've harbored hate and bitterness in our hearts. And just like Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, when we've done that, we're just as guilty. Finally, his conclusion is, there's no fear of God before their eyes. This is the depravity of our pride. We simply don't acknowledge him. We live like he didn't create us. We walk all over his earth like he didn't make it and give it to us. And there's just no acknowledgement of God. We've built our entire lives apart from him. There's no proper allegiance to him, no proper affection for him, no proper attention given to him. There's no devotion, no loyalty, no place for God. Why? Because everything revolves around us. And in our own little kingdom, there's no place for God. 
Now, what is Paul doing in Romans 3? He is painting a picture of humanity, and it's one of total depravity. Every aspect of our lives is impacted and affected by sin. But we're not done yet. It's not just in Romans 3. Romans 5.12, Paul says, Therefore, as sin came into the world through one man, death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sinned. You know what Paul's saying is that through the one sin of Adam, death spread to all men. So in other words, what happened in the garden didn't stay in the garden. You know what I'm saying? What happened there affected all of humanity. The curse of death spread to all men. Total depravity teaches that because of sin, everyone is spiritually dead. That's what he says in Ephesians 2. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons and daughters of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. He is describing people before they come to Christ. Did you catch all that? Paul said, apart from regeneration in Christ, what are you? Dead in your sin. Dead. Dead. Not mostly dead, all dead. And we willingly followed the pattern of this world. We followed the prince of the power of the air. You know who that is? Satan. God, I didn't follow Satan. Yes, you did. Yes, you did. And so did I. You may not have had like a Satanism t-shirt, Right? But you followed after Satan because you lived according to the patterns of this world. You were sons and daughters of disobedience. And what did we do? Joyfully and happily, we lived in the passions of our flesh. We carried out the desires of our sinful body and depraved minds. Oh, and one more thing. Apart from Christ, we were by, what did Paul say? Nature, children of wrath. Psalm 55, verse 1, or 51, verse 5. Behold, David says, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Psalm 58, 3. The wicked are estranged from the womb. They go astray from birth, speaking lies. And David's prayer of confession, he acknowledges his sinful past goes all the way back to his very birth. Every person David is saying is born with a sinful nature. You know what our world teaches us? That you're born good, morally good. And then you go off track a little bit and you sin and therefore become a sinner. David's saying it's not like that. We're born this way. We sin, you know why? Because we're born sinners. That's what sinners do. Sinners do what? Sin. And David says we're from the womb. That's like pre-birth, right? I'm not a doctor, but I think when you're in the womb, you haven't been born yet. In the womb, you were estranged from birth. Then in 2 Timothy 2, 25 and 26, Paul's describing those who are opposed to the gospel. And he says, God may perhaps grant them repentance leading to a knowledge of the truth. And they may, may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. You know what Paul's saying here? Apart from Christ, you have no knowledge of the truth. That's going back to that depravity of mind. 
It's God who grants repentance. You heard that? You saw that in verse 25. Who gives repentance? It's God. Can you put 25 back up? I just, I just, I, I, I just want to make sure you, you see, I'm not making this up. God may grant repentance. You don't grant repentance? Who does? God. I'm not making this stuff up, am I? God grants repentance. You might go, I repented. No, you didn't. God granted your repentance. And he's the one who leads you to a knowledge of the truth. You didn't discover it. Who led you to the truth? God. I, again, I'm not making this up. God leads you to the truth. And then when he does that, he's granted you repentance. He's led you to the truth. What do you do? Now you come to your senses. Now you can escape the snare of the devil. See what he's saying? Apart from God's grace, apart from divine intervention, our minds are unable to know God because we're bound by an enemy. Not only that, but in Mark 4.12, Jesus says that those who are outside the kingdom of God may indeed see but not perceive, may indeed hear but not understand, lest they should turn and be forgiven. He is describing the fact that you can be preaching the gospel and they're hearing it, they're seeing it, but they don't understand it, they don't perceive it, and they don't turn and be forgiven. Why? Because we're spiritually blind. We can't see. We're spiritually deaf to the things of God, and therefore we are incapable on our own to turn and be forgiven. You remember Genesis 6, 5? The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Don't miss those words. Every, only, continually. What is he saying? When God looked into the earth, he says, every intention, only evil, continually. Ecclesiastes 9.3. This is an evil in all that is done under the sun, and the same event happens to all. What happens to everyone? Here he goes. The hearts of the children of men are full of evil and madness is in their hearts while they live. And after that, they go to the dead. Merry Christmas. The Old Testament philosopher Solomon is saying, listen, and by the way, this is the guy who prayed and asked God for wisdom, and God said, granted, wisest guy ever lived. The wisest man who's ever lived looked at humanity and said, you know, when I look at people, you know what I see? Children of man full of evil, madness in their hearts, right? Depravity has seeped its way into our hearts. Our hearts are full of evil. You know what Jeremiah says? 17.9, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? You know what our culture tells you to do? Hey, look within. Just look at your heart. Trust it. Do you know how completely opposed to the Bible that is? You know why? Because your heart is deceitful above all else. I mean, when people come to me and say, listen, I have really like done some soul searching and I just believe it with all my heart. I go, I'm just like, red flag, red flag. Your heart is deceitful. Why would you, I, why would you trust it? It's sick. Your heart is deceitful and sick. Your heart, look at me, will lie to you. That's what, Jeremiah is saying, your heart is a liar and it will lie to you. And it's desperately sick and self-destructive. Mark 7, 21 through 23. Again, here's Jesus. 
for, for one, from within, out of the heart of man. What comes out of the heart of man? Evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within and they defile a person. You don't need any help being depraved. You're not, well, I've just been influenced by, no, no, no. Your own heart produces these things. You have no one to blame but yourselves. Our hearts are evil and from them flow all sorts of evil. John 3, 19. And this is the judgment. Light, that's Jesus, has come into the world. And people did what? Loved the darkness rather than the light because their works are evil. Jesus steps into the scene says, I'm the light of the world. People are going, we hate you. You know why? We love darkness. We love darkness. That's why the world is under judgment. We love darkness rather than light. Our desires are depraved, guys. 1 Corinthians 2.14. You guys think I'm done? I'm not done. The natural person, that's the person apart from Christ, does not accept the things of the Spirit of God. Why? They're folly to him. And he is not able not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. You know why people don't understand the Bible apart from Christ? Because you're not able to. You're unable, unable, can't. In our sinful state, we do not accept the things of the God. It's not that we merely reject them, which we do, but we indict them as folly. We hear the gospel and we go, that is foolishness. You ever shared the gospel with somebody and they go, just didn't make any sense. You go, yeah, I, I know. It seems like folly to you, but it's salvation for me. You cannot understand the things of God apart from him because your mind is broken. It's broken. Your minds are depraved. There is a total and complete inability. That's why Paul said you are not able, unable, unable. There's an inability to discern the things of God unless God gives you spiritual sight. Titus 1.15, to the pure all things are pure, but to the defiled and who? Unbelieving, that's who they are. The defiled are the unbelieving. Nothing is pure. Both their minds and their consciences are defiled. I'm not making this stuff up. I'm literally just reading scripture to you. Apart from Christ, your mind and your conscience is defiled. So that, that, that conscience mechanism that helps you discern good from evil, guess what? Broken. It's broken. Just in case you thought maybe your mind and conscience had escaped depravity, nope. Affected and infected as well. John 8, 34, Jesus said, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. Pretty straightforward here, isn't it? If you practice sin, guess what? Slave, sin is your master. You are enslaved to sin. Psalm 133. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? You know what he's saying? If God counted all of our sin against us, could anyone stand before God? It's a rhetorical question, and the answer is no one. No one can stand before God. Proverbs 20, verse 9. Who can say, I have made my heart pure. I am clean from my sin. That's self-salvation. When you say, I came to God, I got my act together, and I said, no more, Clint, no more. I'm going to come to God. Proverbs says, who has ever done that? The rhetorical question is, no one. 
No one has ever done that. No one can cleanse and purify their sin from their life. Ecclesiastes 7.20. You guys, I'm not done yet. Surely there is not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. Isaiah 53.6. All we like sheep have done what? Gone astray. We have turned every one to our own way. Isaiah 64.6. We have all become like one who is unclean. And all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. Every good you've ever done has some pollution in it. We all fade like a leaf and our iniquities, like the wind, take us away. There's not a righteous person on earth who is characterized by doing good without sin. We all go our own way with an utter disregard for the Lord. And all our good deeds are polluted with sin. Romans 3.23 For All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. For all, that is every single person has sinned. And in our depravity, we fall short of the glory of God. 1 John 1, 8. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. Every one of us is affected and infected by sin and you are powerless to do anything about it on your own. John 3, 5 to 7. Jesus answered, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of flesh is flesh. That which is born of the spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. You remember from our John series, Jesus is talking to Nicodemus. He's this great teacher. And despite his best efforts to live righteously and do good, Jesus looks at probably one of the most righteous compared to society people in his day. The great teacher, the famous Pharisee, and says, hey, Nicodemus, you, even you, need to be born again. You know why? Nick, it's not a matter of effort. It's, it's, it's the problem that your flesh only produces what? Flesh. Like begets like. So if you want to be born of the Spirit, flesh can't produce the Spirit. You see that? The Spirit has to produce the Spirit. So if you want to be born of the Spirit, you've got to, the Spirit has to produce the spiritual What he's saying is you can't do this rebirth thing on your own. When Nicodemus said, what am I going to enter my mother's womb again? That's impossible. Jesus going, yep, it is impossible for you. You want to be reborn, you've got to look to the spirit. Rebirth, regeneration is just simply outside the scope and ability of humanity. John 6, 44 and 65. No one. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. So did you draw yourself to the Father? No. No one can come to Jesus unless the Father draws them. So if you've come to Jesus, you know what happened? The Father drew you to him. It doesn't get more straightforward than that. And then in case you missed it in verse 44, he says the same thing again in 65. And Jesus said, this is why I told you, no one can come to me unless it's granted him by the Father. Who grants you to go to Jesus? The Father. No one brings themselves to God. The Father draws all who come to Jesus and no one comes to the Father unless it's granted to him by God. Now I'll stop the waterboarding of scripture here. There's more. I could keep going. This isn't even an exhaustive list of the Bible's teaching 
on total depravity. But I wanted painstakingly, verse by verse, to show you this is the picture Scripture gives you. But our culture continues to tell you how awesome you are. Continues to tell you how there's so much good in you. And we believe it. That's why we're held captive by its deceit to go, no, 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 it can't be that bad. No, no, it is that bad. It's actually much worse than you probably think it is. That's why when we hear the doctrine of total depravity, there's this like resistance that starts to go into us. Like, I'm not totally depraved. Well, that's just your total depravity speaking, (laughs) right? No one wants to think that they're completely unable to go to God. We want just like some badge of honor. And what all of these scriptures have just said is, no. It's all grace. Every single bit of it. If I could summarize all of the scriptures I just read, it's this. The Bible describes us as dead, bound, blind, deaf, enslaved, uninstructable, and naturally sinful. Is that a fair assessment and summary of everything I just read? So I ask you this. Can the dead raise themselves? Can the bound free themselves? Can the blind give themselves sight? Can the deaf restore their own hearing? Can the enslaved redeem themselves? Can the uninstructable instruct themselves? Can the naturally sinful change themselves? The answer in the Bible is a resounding no. No. Why? We're totally depraved. Every part of us, soul and body, mind and heart, will and emotion have been corrupted by the fall. We are born dead in sin and therefore every single one of us is unable to respond to the Lord apart from divine intervention. Now we've defined total depravity. We've defended it from scripture. How do we apply apply this to our lives? Real quick. Number one, We need much more humility. The doctrine of total depravity should bring us to our knees. We have zero ground for boasting. The only appropriate response to seeing the truth of our sin is to repent and beg God for mercy. Martin Luther in his book, Bondage of the Will, he writes this. God has surely promised grace to the humbled. That is, to those who mourn over and despair of themselves. But a man cannot be thoroughly humble till he realizes his salvation is utterly beyond his own powers, counsel, effort, will, and works, and depends absolutely on the will, counsel, pleasure, and work of another, God alone. As long as he is persuaded that he can make even the smallest contribution to his salvation, he will remain self-confident and not utterly despair of himself, and so not be humbled before God but plans out for himself a position, an occasion, a work which shall bring him final salvation. But he who is out of doubt that his destiny depends entirely on the will of God, despairs entirely of himself and chooses nothing for himself, but waits for God to work in him. And such a man is very near to grace for salvation. We need to be more humble. Number two, we need more than a pep talk. All the Instagrammers and influencers and Peloton instructors and self-help gurus, all of them think what you really need, that your greatest problem is you need a pep talk. 
You don't need a pep talk. All of them are telling you, you know, you're, you're basically good. You just need someone to inspire you and influence you to just get past these few easy hurdles. I did it and so you can too. The problem with this foolishness is it flies in the face of the truth of scripture. Can you imagine going to the doctor? You've been tired and you've got this pain in your abdomen. You're like, doc, I don't know what's going on. The doctor does a full workup on you. And he pulls up the labs and he looks at everything. And the doctor is sitting there going, oh my gosh, this guy's got stage four aggressive thoracic cancer. And the doc comes in and you ask the doc, doc, how bad is it? What do you want in that moment? What do you need in that moment? You want a pep talk? You want a sugar-coated diagnosis to make you feel better? Ah, it's something you ate. You'll get over it. Or what do you need? You need gut-level truth. No matter how hard it is to swallow, no matter how hard it is to hear, and you want that doctor to look at you in the face and say, I've got a pathway for treatment. It's bad. It's devastatingly bad. But don't lose hope. Here's the way towards salvation. That's what the Bible does. It doesn't pat you on the back and tell you a lie that you're basically good. And you need to muster up faith and grab yourself by your own bootstraps and walk out of here. It says you're totally brave. But take heart. Take heart. Christ has overcome the world. See, dead people don't need a pep talk. You ever gone to a funeral and given the, the dead person a pep talk? No, I imagine you've never done that because you know it would do nothing. And that brings us to our third application. We need a miracle. That's what we need. See, we aren't mostly dead. We aren't flatlining on an operating table in need of the defibrillator to come and jump us, right? Clear. We aren't bleeding out. We're not in a bad situation. Friends, the Bible says we're dead. Like fully dead. Rigor mortis has set in. We are born dead on arrival. So you could, put the, you could try to put paddles on a cadaver and send shockwaves through their body, but nothing's going to happen. You don't need a, we need a miracle. We don't need assistance. We don't need a little bit of help. We don't need a jump start. We need a miracle. We need regeneration. We need God to step in and make us alive together with Christ. You need a new nature. We need someone to set the captive free. We need someone to come and give sight to the blind and hearing to the deaf. We need God to give us the gift of faith and the gift of life so that we can appropriately, appropriately respond to God. You see, apart from God's intervention, total depravity means that no one is able on their own to do anything to choose God, to please God, to love God, to glorify Him. And finally, number four, we need to be amazed and grateful. See, the miracle we need has been provided for us in Christ. It's the Christmas miracle. That's what Christmas is all about. That Jesus came to save his people from their sins. So what you so desperately need, God has graciously provided. And that should cause us to be continually amazed and forever grateful. We should just never get over it. That's what I'm saying. Charles Spurgeon wrote, Too many think lightly of sin. And therefore think lightly of the Savior. He who has stood before God, convicted and condemned with a rope around his neck, is the men 
who weep for joy when he's pardoned to then hate evil which has been forgiven him and to live to the honor of the redeemer by whose blood he has been cleansed. See, when you fully appreciate and see our depravity and then at the same time you see the abundant grace and generosity and mercy of our Lord, the only response is marvelous wonder, genuine love and unending devotion.